You at least let Justice Souter stay in a room there occasionally when you get this done. Well, we're going to give him a nice seat at the Just Desserts Cafe and serve him up a good piece of crow pie. All right, Just Desserts. That was Logan Darrow Clemens on the Fox show Hannity and Colmes back in 2005, describing his plans for a New Hampshire hotel that he intended to build, as you heard called the Lost Liberty Hotel, on a New Hampshire property, specifically Associate Justice on the Supreme Court David Souter's New Hampshire property. The police were concerned enough that Souter's property was under threat to be attacked that they stationed officers around the farm. The American people were undeniably upset. In response, President Bush uh, had issued an executive action. Forty-four states responded to the, uh, the unrest that was, that was among the American people by passing legislation, both in Democratic and Republican states. And it all raises the question, what did Justice Souter, and to a greater extent the Supreme Court, do to prompt Clemens to travel all the way from California just to try and build a hotel in New Hampshire? That's what we're talking about on the show today. I'm Cole. And this is Political Theory. Now, on the show, we've been going sequentially through the Bill of Rights, and this episode will be no exception. The Fifth Amendment is what's next, and so the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution reads, quote, No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense, to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, end quote. One of the things that's relatively unique about the Fifth Amendment, at least up to this point in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, is that the Fifth Amendment really is compromised of a whole bunch of, of individual clauses. And while they all point to the larger theme of justice, they're really all making separate points. It's not in the same way that the Second Amendment was very direct and that the whole amendment dealt with guns, or the, you know, the First Amendment all dealt with freedom of expression. The Fifth Amendment is very strange in that it's a whole series of clauses that have to be tackled individually. And so that's what we're going to do on the show today, going sequentially through the clauses. Now, the first clause uh, is essentially saying that if a crime is infamous, there must be a grand jury indictment before the trial. A grand jury is a group of 16 to 23 people who hear preliminary arguments for convictions and decide if there's enough evidence to move into a full-blown trial. The critical difference uh, between a jury and a trial and a grand jury is that the grand jury decides simply if there's enough evidence to make it probable, to make the probable assumption that a person committed the crime, not that there's enough evidence to say with any certainty that they did. But you'll only use a grand jury for what's known as an infamous crime. A good old-fashioned Wikipedia reading will tell you that we get the idea of an infamous crime from Roman laws, which had punishments that were referred to as infamia, which was basically a form of social exile and sometimes even legal exile. You effectively lost your citizenship and all the rights that were included in that, including the right to vote, to be a witness, open travel, etc. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, there has for a long time been a concept of infamy, whereby somebody loses their respect and privileges within the church, such as the ability to be ordained, because of some atrocious act that they committed. And concepts like these are pretty historically common. For instance, in Poland for a long time, exile was a pretty traditional way to deal with criminality, and they too referred to it as infamia. In the modern legal context, infamous crime has come to be any crime where one will spend a year in jail if they're convicted. 
with all that said, because unlike many other amendments, the Supreme Court has never ruled that the Fifth Amendment applies to the states. Most states have chosen preliminary hearings in favor of grand juries, where one basically presents the evidence that would be presented in front of a grand jury, but instead in front of a judge. And uh, you'll really only find grand juries in, uh, in, in their totality, at least, in the federal court system. Now, the next clause in the Fifth Amendment is essentially saying that the grand jury clause doesn't apply during times of war. The reason the clause exists, I think, is pretty obvious. War can be a dangerous and often dirty and nasty time. The last thing that we would want would be our soldiers worrying or hesitating out on the battlefield uh, when the safety of or the security of our nation is at risk because the soldiers are uh, fearful that they might be prosecuted. The Supreme Court did rule in O'Callaghan v. Parker in 1969 that the Fifth Amendment War Protection Clause only applies to indictments relating to service, and it's not a general protection for members of the armed service and civilian life, nor is it a protection for civilians during war. Now, the next clause is commonly referred to as the Double Jeopardy Clause, saying that a person can't be tried twice for the same crime. There's a lot of debate over what exactly those words, same offense, should be taken to mean. For instance, if a, a single crime that a person commits violates two different statutes and the person is acquitted, mean deemed not guilty, uh, on the one statute, should they be able to be tried again? According to the 1932 uh, Supreme Court case Blockburger v. the U.S., if, quote, each provision requires proof of an additional fact, which the other does not, end quote, then they can be tried again. And that quote uh, comes from the opinion of the court. For instance, in uh, 1977, the Supreme Court heard a case in which a man in East Cleveland, Ohio, had used a man's car without his permission and then stole the car and drove it to Wycliffe, Ohio. He was charged by East Cleveland officers for stealing the car, and he pled, pled guilty to that charge. And then in Wycliffe, uh, he was charged with operating the car without the owner's consent, and he pled guilty to that charge as well. In the case Brown v. Ohio, the court said that because the same evidence uh, was to be used to convict the man on both of those counts. He could only be charged with one. And obviously, if a mistrial occurs, meaning that a judge grants the prosecution or the defense a do-over over the trial, then the double jeopardy clause doesn't apply. Now, the next part deals with self-incrimination. It says that no person can be compelled to testify against themselves. You know, no person can be forced to say that they did it or compelled to say that they did it. And I do want to take some time to talk about self-incrimination. And uh, whether or not we have, in our modern legal system, upheld that provision of the Constitution. But I think first, we ought to talk about the Miranda rights. Now, the Miranda rights bear a lot of relevance in our modern legal system. And they come from a 1966 Supreme Court case, Miranda v. Arizona. In 1963, Ernesto Miranda was arrested for uh, kidnap and rape. And Miranda, who was not told he had a right to legal counsel, a right to silence, or any of the other constitutionally granted rights, pled guilty after two hours of intensive interrogation by police. Now, the court ruled that uh, the police had violated the Constitution when they had not informed Miranda of his rights because that would have uh, led him to self-incriminate, which, again, is not constitutional. Then-Chief Justice Earl Warren wrote, quote, The person in custody must, prior to interrogation, be clearly informed that he has the right to remain silent and that anything he says will be used against him in a court. He must be clearly informed that he has the right to consult with a lawyer and to have the lawyer with him during interrogation. And that, if he is uh, indigent, a lawyer will be appointed to represent him. End quote. Because of the Miranda ruling, whenever police now make an arrest, they read the Miranda rights, which includes the rights uh, that Chief Justice Warren wrote about, as well as a few others. But while police can't force a confession, they can offer incentives for the person to accept responsibility for the crime. U.S. federal sentencing guidelines provide that if a person pleads guilty to a crime or assists the police in catching a criminal, 
they can have a sentence reduction that amounts to an average sentencing reduction of 35%. But many feel that the extent to which plea bargains are used, and the way that they're used, is starting to drift into unconstitutional territory. Now, it makes sense why over 90% of people in both state and federal courts choose plea bargains, right? In 2012, the average sentence for people convicted on federal narcotics charges who entered into a plea bargain was just over five years. And compare that to the average sentence for defendants who went to trial and on average got a 16-year sentence. When you compare the five to the 16, it's not hard to see why the plea bargain is appealing. On top of that, prosecutors have often been encouraged to seek the most severe punishment that they can get away with. This means that when the defense and the prosecution meet to try and work out a plea bargain, the prosecution can make it so that the gamble the defense would be taking by not accepting the plea bargain would be so great that it would be worth it to take the plea bargain rather than going to trial and risking such a large sentence. On top of that, the prosecution can do all of this without having to let the defense in on the full extent of the evidence that they have. For all the defense knows, the prosecution has the evidence to back up their severe charges, and it compels the defense even more to accept a plea bargain, regardless of whether or not their client committed the crime. As uh, law professor Stephen Schull offered offer, uh, in this general critique of the system, quote, the major problem with plea bargaining is that it forces the party into a situation where they have to take a guess about what the evidence is, about how strong the case might be, and they have to make that guess against the background of enormously severe penalties if you guess wrong. So defendants, even if they have a strong defense, and even if they are innocent, in fact face enormous pressure to play the odds and accept a plea, end quote. Um, in the summer of 2002, Brian Banks had a bright future. He had a verbal commitment to play football at USC in exchange for a full scholarship. But on top of that, Banks had his own mailbox at school because of all the recruiting letters he was getting. And then he was falsely accused of sexual assault. Facing 41 years in prison and fearing the worst, he accepted a plea bargain. Five years in jail instead of 41, and then five years of community service after that. And five years is a long time in the life of an athlete. Winetta Gibson, who had accused him of sexual assault, eventually came out and admitted that she had fabricated the story. And Brian Banks was cleared of wrongdoing. He's now a professional football player. He's gone on to have a successful career. And even though the story has a happy ending, it's a prime example of where a person was compelled to plead guilty and self-incriminate. Both the National Innocence Project, as well as the National Registry of Exonerations, have found that of the people later proven to be innocent, about 10% pled guilty. And that's just among the people who have been proven innocent. With about 2 million people uh, in prison based on plea bargains, and criminologists suggesting that the number of innocent people who plead guilty on plea bargains could be as high as 8%, it would imply that up to 160,000 people could have been jailed wrongfully because they were forced to self-incriminate against all odds. The Harvard Law Review summed it up best when they published an article on this exact topic back in 1970. They said, quote, A plea induced by a bargain, though perhaps voluntary in that no blatant coercion has been employed, and in that the defendant has full knowledge and understanding of his actions, still subverts the defendant's ability and will to defend himself, for the state has structured his alternatives and encouraged him to plead guilty as the lesser of two evils, end quote. Now, on this show... I've been trying to give both sides of an argument fairly, and this is going to be no exception. Plea bargains can benefit everyone. Plea bargains give a person the right to control their destiny to speak. While it's not ideal, it gives them choices they would have not otherwise had. Attorney Bruce Green, in an interview with Frontline, said, quote, I think the main benefit of the plea bargaining process from the state's point of view is it saves a lot of money and resources. It also was in some ways fairer to witnesses and prospective jurors. Imagine if in all these cases, the victims and witnesses had to come before the court to testify. 
And in all these cases, people had to leave their jobs in order to serve on juries. That would be very onerous for the public. So, from the state's point of view, if you have someone, especially someone who's clearly guilty, and you could get them to plead guilty by offering them a bargain, it's in everybody's interest to do that. And Judge Michael McSpaden, a Houston judge, notes that plea bargains benefit the defendant and their client uh, as well by shortening the judicial process, which saves the court and the client money and the court and the defendant and client all time. He said to Frontline, quote, We have 15 new cases this morning. If you spend a month on every case, again, these people would not have their case come up for years down the road. That's unfair to them. It's unfair to a lot of people who want their justice done right now, end quote. And his point about the length of trials is well made. A jury trial is two and a half times longer than if there's a guilty plea. Plea bargaining can certainly be done right, with proper legal representation and more transparency in the system, which the Supreme Court did recently rule a person had a right to. In two cases, Missouri v. Fry and Lafler v. Cooper. Here is Justice Anthony uh, Kennedy explaining why one man's deficient counsel led the court to conclude that he should be able to redo the judicial process, at least a portion of it, in the case. Missouri v. Fry. But in arguing that relief should be denied, the state points out there is no right to a plea bargain. That's true. But it is also true that nearly 95% of convictions result from a plea bargain to a significant degree then. then. Uh, today's criminal justice system is a system of plea bargains. And this court is unwilling to say that within that system, counsel's performance does not matter. Now, this does not mean that the respondent, Fry, will necessarily obtain relief in this case. Once ineffective assistance of counsel has been shown, the defendant must still show prejudice. The standard for prejudice is set out in Strickland versus Washington, an earlier case from this court. Under the Strickland test, even after showing ineffective assistance, the defendant must show there is a reasonable probability that the result of the proceeding would have been different and that he was injured as a result. Next is the part of the Fifth Amendment dealing with justice. Uh, and it concludes by saying that all of this should be done with due process, essentially saying that the following should be guaranteed to each person being prosecuted in the legal system. First, an unbiased tribunal. Uh, second, notice of the proposed action and the grounds asserted for it. Three, opportunity to present reasons why the proposed action should not be taken. Four, the right to present evidence, including the right to call witness. Five, the right to know opposing evidence. Six, the right to cross-examine adverse witnesses. Seven, a decision based exclusively on the evidence presented. Eight, opportunity to be represented by counsel. Nine, requirement that the tribunal prepare a record of the evidence presented. And ten, requirement that the tribunal prepare written findings on fact and reason for its decision. Uh, now, those ten specific requirements were written up by Judge uh, Henry Friendly. And uh, they don't have strict legal bearings. They're not binding in any way, but they do serve as a nice guideline for what due process should be. Uh, initially, New York was the only state to include a due process clause in their state constitution, and that led James Madison to want to include it in the constitution. Now, from there, due process is often broken down into two further categories. There's substantive due process and procedural due process. Substantive due process deals more with the government's reasoning behind taking away a person's life, liberty, or property. It has more to do with the governmental intrusions, as the Wex Legal Dictionary puts it, quote, into fundamental rights and liberties be fair and reasonable and in furtherance of a legitimate governmental interest, end quote. Procedural due process, though, deals more with the manner in which a government uh, deprives a citizen of life, liberty, or property. It has to do more with 
making sure that the government does it in such a way that proper procedures are followed, that Judge Henry Friendly's list is properly kept to its adhered to. And so while substantive deals more with the substance, as it would suggest, of the due process, procedural due process deals more with, as you may have guessed, the procedures involved. But questions of due process during the war on terror especially have emerged, oftentimes in criticism of the Pentagon, the White House, or the Department of Justice. For instance, in 2011, the Obama administration came under fire for the use of a drone to kill United States citizen Anwar al-Awlaki and his 16-year-old son, given his high-ranking connections to al-Qaeda. A Department of Justice white paper that was eventually released argued that, quote, where the following three conditions are met, a U.S. operation using lethal force in a foreign country against a U.S. citizen who is a senior operational leader of al-Qaeda or an associated force would be lawful. First, an informed high-level official of the U.S. government has determined that the targeted individual poses an imminent threat of violent attack to the United States. Second, capture is infeasible, and the U.S. continues to monitor whether capture becomes feasible. And three, the operation would be conducted in a manner consistent with applicable law of war principles. End quote. The paper also argues that, quote, the president has authority to respond to the imminent threat posed by al-Qaeda and its associated forces, arising from his constitutional responsibility to protect the country, the inherent right of the U.S. to national self-defense under international law, end quote. In the same way that a police officer has uh, what's known as public authority justification or public authority defense, essentially the right to shoot a another citizen if it appears imminent that that citizen is going to shoot another civilian and hence a crime is imminent. Well, in that same way, the president has the authority under that same public authority justification to take similar action and that because Anwar al-Awlaki posed a threat to the U.S., the president had the authority and the obligation to protect the United States and take him out. This understandably drew widespread criticism. A Mother Jones article entitled Another Casualty of the War on Terror, the Fifth Amendment, called all of this reasoning, quote, a perverse chain of ankle bone connected to the leg bone logic, end quote. And a New York Times op-ed entitled A Thin Rationale for Drone Killings said, quote, the memo turns out to be a slapdash pastiche of legal theories, some based on obscure interpretations of British and Israeli law that were clearly tailored to the desired result, end quote. You can see the white paper memo for yourself on our website where it's posted under the blog section. Our website is politicaltheorypodcast.com. And all of this kind of concludes in a debate about whether or not people who pose a threat to the U.S. deserve due process. Uh, In turn, it becomes a debate about legalism and how stringently we should adhere to that law. On the one hand, the president does have a right to protect the uh, the American people, right? He's elected to protect and defend the Constitution. And the Constitution can't very well exist if America ceases to exist as a country because we failed to properly combat the undeniably growing threat of terror. On the other hand, in that same oath, the president also promises to preserve the Constitution. And many feel that by not giving people like Anwar al-Awlaki the due process that he was constitutionally entitled to, the Obama administration set in place what could be a dangerous slippery slope that sets a precedent for future abuse. Here's self-proclaimed libertarian and former congressman Ron Paul explaining why he feels that the Obama administration overreached and abused the due process clause in the drone killing of al-Awlaki. Read the Fifth Amendment. Uh, it's pretty clear that you can't take a life without due process of law, especially of an American citizen. So I would say that he's way off base. This is historic. We've never had a policy that said that we can put somebody on a on a uh, on an assassination list by a secret uh, tribunal, so to speak. We don't even know what the qualification is or the 
or, or the criteria to put somebody on this list. I think this is a most dangerous precedent, and uh, respect for the Constitution and the rule of law uh, needs to be uh, looked at because I think we have lost a lot of it. I consider this one of the most dangerous things that we have done, and this president has done it in the opening. opening. He announced this policy in February of last year. I gave a speech on the House floor shortly thereafter uh, uh, advising how dangerous this was, and uh, this, this means that uh, we have very much violated the whole concept of the rule of law. Now, the last clause of the Fifth Amendment says that the government has the right to take property for public use, as long as the person whose property is being seized is, quote, justly compensated. This is commonly referred to as eminent domain, and despite the existence of eminent domain in our Constitution from the very beginning, there are still widespread debates over how it should be used. While there were initial disputes over its placement in the Constitution between Thomas Jefferson, who was not keen on the idea of government seizing land because it reminded him of feudalism, and uh, James Madison, who held a more moderate view of the power of government, uh, they eventually struck a compromise, agreeing that land would be for public use. The Department of Justice website says, quote, eminent domain has been utilized traditionally to facilitate transportation, supply water, construct public buildings, and aid in defense readiness, end quote. The use of eminent domain has come under increasing scrutiny as land has become less and less available, especially in the 20th and 21st century. Those who scrutinize it and call for its removal from the Fifth Amendment cite the inefficiency of the government to deliver on the promise that there will be widespread public benefits. Often, even worse than the benefits that the government promises failing to come, things like increased tax revenue, oftentimes the land that they say is being seized for public good is left empty. In West Palm Beach, Florida, John and Wendy uh, Zemeek, I think is how you pronounce their last name, I'm not 100% sure, uh, but they were forced out of their home to make way for a golf course with the anticipation by the government that the golf course would bring money back into West Palm Beach and that it would make the land more profitable than it had previously been and subsequent benefit everybody for public good. Now, the once again, not sure on the pronunciation here, but I'm going with the, Z the Zemeeks, along with the other 300 families who are either forced out or left before legal action against them would be pursued under eminent domain laws, watched in horror as a decade went by without any development after they finally uh, gave up their home in 2002. Even to this day, there have been no developments on the land. It's simply empty property that was seized for no apparent purpose. Similar stories can be found all across the nation, where people were evicted from their home under eminent domain laws, and then the government failed to follow up on their promises, depriving the city of homes and the promised uh, revenues. On top of that, many people feel personal attachments to their home that aren't taken into consideration when eminent domain is used. People are compensated by their home's market price, but many feel that that doesn't do them justice. An example would be Jim and Joanna Salit. Uh, they'd been living just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, in the same house for 38 years when the city of Lakewood tried to use eminent domain to force them out of their home in order to make way for new condos. They had been talking about buying one of those houses on that street, that specific street, since they'd started dating. It had been a dream home for them. Jim had worked years in the pharmaceutical industry in order to try and make sure that they could pay off the house, and when they finally had enough money, they settled down, happily. But now, after all of those years, they were being forced out. And they certainly didn't feel that the financial compensation they were receiving did any justice in terms of the fact that they had put their life into getting this house, that it had been their life dream, and that now it was being taken away from them. This makes as good a point as any to see the other side of eminent domain, its merits and its benefits. See, in that same city, Lakewood City Mayor Madeline Kane said that the condos were, quote, about Lakewood's future. Lakewood could not survive without a strengthened tax base. Is it right to consider this public good? Absolutely. 
end quote, she says. Another place where eminent domain, or in this case, the threat of eminent domain, brought widespread public repercussions positively to an area was in downtown Vancouver County in Washington. The Columbian, a local newspaper in southwest Washington, detailed the revenue that came as a result of the acquisition and eventual destruction of the Monterey Hotel, a hotel that was notable uh, for, according to the article, quote, its obvious rundown condition and for having more fire, police, and ambulance calls than any other address in southwest Washington. Common sense tells us that the cost to Vancouver taxpayers would have been substantial, end quote. And on top of that, taxpayers had been subsidizing the hotel in Vancouver County and its rundown condition for years, and the constant fire risk was perceived as driving business away from the district. The article went on to state, quote, no business person in their right mind would develop with the Monterey Hotel as a next-door next neighbor, end quote. But after the destruction of the hotel, more than 200 people were employed in the new West Coast building bank that opened up, and that put more than 200000 back into the city's pockets and tax. On top of that, uh, condos and a private university have also been opened there since. Stephen M. Burdick, who was the area's director of economic development, listed off the economic benefits that the removal of the Monterey Hotel brought, and concluded that, quote, residents and taxpayers benefited greatly from the use of eminent domain, end quote. Here is Jerry Rosenfeld, who was the president of the JR Group in Detroit when he conducted this NPR interview on eminent domain. In this clip, he talks about an example of where eminent domain had a positive effect on the Detroit area. If anyone's familiar with the city of Detroit, we have a lot of blight here. I mean, we have a lot of problems. We have a lot of issues because of the automotive industry and the downturn of the industry. But we have huge areas of property that are vacant. Let's take an area that's defined as a blighted area. And there is someone in the middle of the blighted area that is non-conforming. And we have the opportunity of a development in that property to revitalize that particular area through blight and through condemnation. Now, we happen to have done this, if people are familiar with the brand new stadiums, the Lions and the Tigers, just north of here was an area called Brush Park. And this was a scary, blighted, drug-infested area as you could find in the city of Detroit. Today, because they had the ability to condemn the property, to take the people out of there, which they did, and some of the people stayed, and they had the opportunity to stay and buy the homes that are in there. And they went forward, and they have a great development over there. But the entire debate about public domain was fundamentally changed in 2005, when the Supreme Court ruled in Kelovi City of New London that eminent domain could be used by the government to seize land and transfer it from one private property to another, as long as they felt sure that the other private uh, entity that was taking control of the land would benefit the public, and that it would subsequently have public good, as was laid out in the amendment. Many people were outraged by the decision. Everybody from the general public to scholars to politicians had a, never, had a negative reaction, including then-President Bush himself, who issued an executive order restricting the use of eminent domain. The decision caused such an uproar that Newear, New Hampshire, where then-Associate uh, Justice David Souter had property, a proposal was put on the ballot to use eminent domain to seize Souter's property and build, if you'll remember, the Lost Liberty Hotel. The initiative failed. It failed three to one. But I still thought it was worth mentioning, not only because it's, it's pretty amusing, but also because it demonstrates the importance that many feel when it comes to their liberties and freedoms, whether those liberties deal with property rights and land ownership, like eminent domain does, or whether it's with concepts like due process and double jeopardy protections. That's our episode for today. Email us your thoughts at politicaltheorypodcast at gmail.com, and I'll try to answer any questions or respond to any comments you have on the air. You can check out our website, politicaltheorypodcast.com, and get more information on the show, as well as other ways to access the episodes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.